Welcome to the Sounding Off with Kim Munson podcast, and be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. There's all kinds of great information there. You'll see our upcoming guests, as well as our most recent uh, podcasts and our most recent op-eds. On the line with me is Tara Ross. We've talked with her before, but it's very timely to do this podcast with you, Tara, because you are an expert on the, ele- uh, the Electoral College. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. And you are the author of a whole bunch of different things, a number of different articles, but a couple of books I wanted to highlight is one, Why We Need the Electoral College, and then there is a children's book, We Elect a President, The Story of Our Electoral College, and then you also did a Prager University video on this as well, Tara. Yes, I did, and we actually taped it before the 2016 election, little suspecting just how big of an issue it would come in 2016, but I was really glad it was available when um, when it was needed. And it is one of the most viewed Prager University videos out there, which is saying something, because people are really using these videos to learn about these important issues. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's got more than 60 million views, which is crazy. But, um, but, you know, again, I think it's just because the Electoral College is something that people don't really understand because it's not been taught that well in our schools, unfortunately. And so, of course, when it came to be an issue in 2016, people people needed something to help them give a quick, you know, quick understanding of it. And I'm so glad it's available and it's still out there. It's called, if anybody needs it, it's called Do You Understand the Electoral College? You pretty much have to Google the title straight to get it. <laughs> okay. Do you understand <laughs> the Electoral College? The Electoral College. Okay. Very you, good. Well, it is super important here in Colorado. And I actually had talked to people over the years, and there had been something, I think, kind of underneath the surface that people did not realize. But in our colleges and universities, they have been teaching and advocating to get rid of the Electoral College, which I was pretty astounded with, but, uh, you know, many of these very left-leaning professors don't like the Electoral College. So let's set this up. Why did the founders come up with the Electoral College, and how does it work, Tara? Well, you know, I think if we're going to understand the Electoral College, we just, we need to understand the foundations of our whole Constitution. Our founders were, were living at a time where they had just fought this revolution against Britain, right? They were, they wanted to be self-governing. They wanted a seat at the table, no taxation without representation, right? We've all heard that. Mm-hmm. But that's what they wanted. They wanted to, to be in charge of their own destiny. But they also knew something that we have forgotten, and they knew that even if they had been given a seat at the table in Parliament, they would have been outvoted time and time again by the majority of citizens at home in England. They still would have been tyrannized. They still would not have been treated well. And so the difficult question that was before them at the Constitutional Convention is, how do you create a society that is self-governing but also have protections for minority groups that so they're not tyrannized by emotional or bare majorities? The, the modern example is two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner, right? right. <laughs> the sheep doesn't, does not care that it got to vote, <laughs> whatever. Because they were so, for dinner. <laughs> right, they're still being eaten for dinner. So how do you, how do you create a, a just system? Not just, you know, you can be fair, but not like in the sense that everybody has one vote, but how do you create something that's just and that has healthy dynamics in your society because every voice can be heard? And so that's what... They created a constitution with separation of powers and checks and balances, presidential vetoes, supermajority requirements to amend the constitution. The Electoral College is just one of these protective devices 
to make sure that, yeah, look, the people elect the president, but also we're going to have safeguards so that one part of the country doesn't tyrannize over the rest of the country. Seems like pretty brilliant just to get to that point to understand that particular issue, to make sure that, you know, so many times, Tara, I find it interesting that people in the know talk about protecting our democracy, our democracy, our democracy. We are a a constitutional republic, a democratic constitutional republic. And it's important that people understand that because a straight democracy, 51% can vote to take the stuff away from the other 49%. And that's not fair or just what you just mentioned. And so uh, the founders came up with this constitutional republic uh, so that we could make sure that we don't have the tyranny of the mob, of a democratic mob. Absolutely. And I mean, honestly, it's even worse than that. It could, instead of being 51 to 49, it could be a plurality. You know, if 46, 45% of the people, that was the most, right? If the vote got too fractured. And in the presidential election process, that could easily happen. We, there's a, there are elections in France where there's six to 10 presidential candidates in, in the mix. And literally, two people will get in the runoff with less than 20% of the vote apiece. And so the French people are stuck with this choice between two people who were rejected by 80% of the people, you know, but that's not, that's not a good system either. But that's where we, we would find ourselves if we had a straight-up national popular vote. Um, you can look to some of the primaries that we've had in recent years to see just how easily a, a, a candidates can get fractured and how voters can get fractured. And, 2016, there were 17 presidential candidates in the GOP primary, you know, and I'm not bashing any particular candidate, but the dynamic in that primary was, well, my 18% beat your 17%, so there, you know, (laughs) I mean, there was no need to build coalitions, there was no need to try to reach out to other, you know, it was literally just first past the post and you're done, right? And so that, that was just look, whoever came out of that primary was going to probably have some kind of problem because it, just the, the divisiveness that, that was generated during that process, you know, so, and, and that, of course, that's the political primaries. That's not our electoral college. But I think that our primaries probably need to be changed in some way to be a little bit, you know, more like the electoral college where we we encourage coalition building and we encourage coming together and trying to figure out what, what brings people together across state lines, across regional lines, across many of the other subcultures that, that are in our nation. And so it's just healthier and, and when you have such a big country that is so diverse with so many different interests in it. Well, and what is so interesting about the Electoral College, let's talk about what it does exactly and, and how it works so that people can understand that because it's absolutely brilliant what the founders came up with to make sure that the minority states were not totally overrun, that they had a voice, but yet still honor the more populous states. And uh, so they came up with the Electoral College. Explain that to our listeners, uh, Tara Ross. Okay, well, in the Electoral College, you do have um, two different kinds of ways you're represented, in a sense, because it reflects your competition in Congress. And in Congress, you have... um, you have a certain number of representatives in the House that's based on your population, and then you, everybody has two senators in the Senate. That's based. That's just a one-state, one-vote kind of a representation. So you have the same number of electors as you have senators plus Congress, men or women. <laughs> so um, 
that there's some of both in there. So, look, California obviously has a big leg up because they've got 55 electors as compared to the smallest state, which has three. Also, it just it tempers the difference a little bit, so it's not quite as bad as it could be. Um, if you take the biggest state, California, I always get these numbers a little bit off on the fly, but, but if you take the biggest state, California, they have something like 68 times the population of Wyoming, the, the smallest state. But, but they only have 18 times the number of electors as Wyoming. If those numbers are a tiny bit off, the correct numbers are in my book. Okay. <laughs> math on the, math so on be the sure and buy the book. Money. And that book is <laughs> why we need the Electoral College to get the actual numbers. <laughs> really close. I feel like I'm one digit off sometimes, but, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, some 68 or 67% compared to 18%. And that's a huge, you know, that's, look, Wyoming is still smaller than California. There's still, you'd still rather earn California's 55 electoral votes versus Wyoming's three votes, right? Also, Wyoming has a little bit of leg up, and especially when it's combined with the you know, a little bit of leg up that the other small states get. It's just enough to keep them from being completely overrun. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and if you look at the history of our elections, what you see is that they really, the small states and the medium-sized states, they can't be ignored in our process, which they certainly could be in a, in a direct national popular vote. To go back to 2016, in that year, Hillary Clinton won 20% of her vote from only New York and California only those two states. And in those states, she got most of her vote from the big cities in New York and California. And if you remove those two states from the, the total, Donald Trump is actually leading nationwide by more than 3 million votes. So, I mean, that's, look, that's, that was a mistake on her part to be over-reliant on, on certain kinds of voters in this country that tend to live in big urban areas. But, but without the Electoral College, her strategy would have been rewarded you know, that would have been a good thing, what she did. And she would have doubled down on it, or the next Democratic candidate would have doubled down on it. Republicans would have tried to emulate it, you know, the next time, too. Mm-hmm. And you can easily imagine a world where Democrats are running off to L.A. and San Francisco and promising the environmentalists everything they want. And meanwhile, Republicans are running down to Dallas and Houston and giving the oil interests everything they want. And it becomes this kind of process where you just see how many votes can I rack up in parts of the country that are already friendly to me and already inclined to vote for me, and I'll just start promising them stuff, right? And that is not what happens to everybody else in that world. That's not how well, they have to take Well, they have to take from everybody else to, to uh, fulfill those promises they're making, <laughs> you know? They're left out in the cold. Yes, and, yes. And that's not good. No, that is not good. Do you feel that—I understand this, but I've really— it's taken me time to understand the Electoral College. So my understanding is what happens then each state votes and then they basically have electors. Tell us how this whole elector thing uh, works, how they get appointed or how they're chosen. Okay, so we have a two-part election in this in this country. The first part is Election Day, which is what you, we normally think of as the process that elects the president. It's actually not. It's the process where we select our presidential electors. So every state has a its own internal election for that purpose. I'm in Texas. We have um, a, we are literally holding a statewide Texas election for the 38 electors that will represent Texas. And what's really important to know about this election that it, as a Texan, I'm casting my ballot for either a slate of Republicans. There are Republican people who are ready to go represent my state, or a slate of Democrats 
Democrat people who are ready to go represent my state, each third-party candidate has also given their own set of 38 names to the state of Texas. So, the, and this is important because, you know, especially I know in Colorado, you guys had the whole ruckus with right. state electors, and um, these are like those Democratic electors that were representing Colorado. If Hillary Clinton had won, there was no way they were going to suddenly go off and start voting for other people. <laughs> you know, they, mm-hmm. The reason that they did that is because they were on the losing side of the campaign, and it was they, they weren't changing the election outcome, right? They were they were trying to convince Trump electors to come with them. But, but these are people, you know, when you elect a slate of Democrats or you elect a slate of Republicans or third party, these are people that are committed to that candidate, and when the candidate wins, they're going to want to vote for them. That's And that's why those Democratic electors in Colorado were so unsuccessful in changing any minds. They were trying to convince Republican electors all across the country to not vote for Trump, whom they'd probably made phone calls for, they'd knocked on doors for him, they'd, you know, they'd, they'd been campaigning. They were grassroots people who wanted to do that. And so these, these electors are, are very stable. I just think that's important to know. Um, as for how we decide who those people are, it varies by state. Um, it's usually at the state party convention within the state. They're, they're somehow selected or elected at that convention. Um, in Texas, we we do that at the they're elected at the like at the Republican or Democratic Party um, convention that's held in the summer of a presidential election year. So anyway, you cast your ballots on election day, and that decides which slate of electors, Democratic or Republican, will go represent your state in part two of the election, which doesn't occur until December, as Colorado may remember better than some other states. <laughs> 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 that election in December, those are the meetings of the electors, and they will cast their ballots. There are 538 of them. It takes a majority of 270 to win the presidency. Okay. Okay. So if Colorado, by chance, would have vote for Donald Trump, then that group of Republican electors would cast the votes for our our uh, our electoral votes. If uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris win the popular vote here in Colorado, then the Democrat electors would cast their vote, right, Colorado's votes. Mm-hmm. So is that correct? Do I have that correct, Tara? That's, that's right. So, I mean, the Colorado voters, when you go to the poll in November— that determines whether you're electing the Democratic electors or the, the Republican electors. Got it. Got uh, it. Th- there are third-party electors, but most likely it'll be Democratic or Republican. But it, these are Democrats you're electing to vote Democrat or Republicans that you're electing to vote Republican. Okay, got it. I think that's clear. So now let's move over to Colorado. And we have a question on the ballot. It is Proposition 113. And the question is, should we adopt an agreement to elect the U.S. president by national popular vote? And Rick Turnquest and I did a voter's guide, and we are recommending a strong no on this. Because in essence, it's unconstitutional. It's trying to do an end run around the Constitution. The U.S. Constitution, if we want to change it, it can be done by the amendment process. So I think it's dishonoring this whole vision of the American idea and our Constitution. But more than that, it takes our vote and our voice and gives it to these big population centers. But Tara Ross, what has been so interesting is those that are advocating for Colorado to to, uh, go towards the national popular vote are, are saying that it actually gives us a voice. And 
it doesn't. Uh, address that, please. I mean, it's pretty much the opposite of giving you a voice. I mean, the compact, a lot of the problem is because it's being doing th- done through a compact and not through a constitutional amendment process. It creates its own unique set of problems. Um, I, you know, look, any time you get rid of the Electoral College, I think Colorado is going to be giving away um, a, a lot to the big population centers in, in California, New York, and Texas, and, and, you know, maybe Miami or something. I mean, it's why, why, would, um, why would a presidential candidate who has limited time and resources, and it's not even malevolent, okay, it's just about, it's just being pragmatic. You have limited time, you have limited resources, you can get votes anywhere in the country, and as long as you can rack up to a plurality, again, not even a majority, but a plurality, just more than anybody else, like, why would you go to places where you can't get as many people all at once? <laughs> you know, it doesn't make any sense. You you want to be efficient. So you would go to the big population centers and you would promise anything, do whatever you could to rack up as many votes as you can in one fell swoop because it's efficient and easy and cheaper, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, that's just, the, that's just, that's just pragmatic. I, I don't know what else to say about it, but, but, then you add to it that you've got this National Popular Vote Compact, which is trying to do an end run around the constitutional amendment process, and it creates its own set of problems. One problem is that you cannot, um, the compact does not give Congress the authority to create a federal election code and to make the non-participating states do anything at all. So there will be states who are against this, who don't want anything to do with it, who will have all sorts of tools in their arsenal to complicate things. And they can do it by, and and there's so many ways to do it, by the way. I mean, as I said, I live in Texas. I mean, there have been discussions about, not official discussions, but people throwing out ideas, including me. (laughs) What if Texas said, yeah, we don't like this compact. We're going to give all of our citizens three votes for president. And, you know, it doesn't really matter to us because we're just going to make sure every Texan counts three times in the national election because we like Texas. <laughs> mm-hmm. We want to we want to count more than everybody else. There's nothing in the compact that can stop Texas from doing that. And Texas can, I mean, what do we care, right? When we're trying to undermine the compact anyway. Or you could look at something like different states have Okay, now just ways. a quick question on that, though, because the Constitution sure. is one person, one vote, right? Or... No. Not necessarily. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, pre- the presidential election process, the states decide how to allocate their electors, and that's it. There's, there's, they have to abide by other provisions in the Constitution, but otherwise they can do what they want to do. So, I mean, te- the Texas state legislature could just do it themselves. They could say, well, this year we're worried about the mail-in fraud. We think it's going to be a big mess. We're just going to appoint the 38 electors and just have done with it, you know, because we don't know. Oh. And, and, I mean, there's... There's so many possibilities. And so if, if the Texas state legislature said, well, we want to give everybody three votes for president, I, what's to stop them? There's nothing to stop them. And, if, and within Texas, we're all going to be treated fairly with each other, which is the Texas state legislature's only responsibility from an equal protection standpoint is to make sure that I, I am treated the same as my next-door neighbor within Texas, right? And so if they want to give me three votes or if they wanted to say, we're going to not have a, a, we're not going to do this for president anymore. We're going to have you vote directly for the electors. So you go down and you have 38 votes to mark one for each elector. You go pick the 38 people you like. 
and by the way, maybe I know the 38 Republicans or the 38 Democrats. Maybe I know somebody in that mix, and I say, oh, yeah, I don't like them. They were mean to me in high school. vote <laughs> 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 for that person. So how do you count my vote is my point, right? Like, mm-hmm. did I cast all 38 for one party or the other, or did I mix it up? Who knows, right? Like, there's, how do you how do you get a tally from that? You you can't is the answer, and and no, just know if if you guys in Colorado adopt this national popular vote, it, it probably sounds confusing what I'm talking about to some degree because nobody's used to thinking about it that way. But you are saying yes, I want to adopt this confusion into my presidential election system, and I want this to be a part of the process in Colorado. If, if for some reason that you know a candidate could not qualify for your ballot in Colorado, but it but that candidate managed to get a majority or a plurality in the rest of the country, Colorado would still have to give your electors to the person who could not qualify for the ballot in Colorado. That is the way this compact is. Wow. Written. And it's in again. It goes back to if you do it through a constitutional amendment process, which, look, I'm against, but if you're going to get rid of the Electoral College, if you do it through a constitutional amendment process, then it's a formal process, you know, you get three-quarters of the state to approve it, and then Congress has the ability to to do some of the things that it would need to do to create a uniform election across the country. So just know that this danger, if the only thing your listeners get out of this is there's going to be a huge mess of legal problems if we adopt this compact, I mean, that's the truth. Okay, so the question really is confusion, chaos versus order. That seems to be the question on a whole lot of things happening in America right now. Our founders were working to put in place something that was uh, had order, was not confusing, that was a found you know foundational. You could rely on that, and it has served us very well. Question: Why on earth would legislators pass this national popular vote compact and a governor sign it if they really cared about the people of their state. I know that's very subjective and you don't have to answer that, but that certainly is the question that's coming to my mind right now, Tara Ross. Well, look, unfortunately, the Electoral College has become a partisan issue. And I do not agree with that. I do not think the the Electoral College is at all, all partisan but it's perceived that way because the of the outcomes in 2000 and 2016. Of course, in both of those years, Democrats won the popular vote but lost the electoral vote. And so, you know, I think part of it's about that and people just being loyal to the Democratic Party because they think that getting rid of the Electoral College will serve the Democratic Party. Um, and, you know, and I think maybe some of it is about Democratic Party tends to be strong in big cities and big cities will gain in strength if the Electoral College is gone. I think all of this is short-sighted. I do not think it's at all clear who will benefit, you know, quote-unquote benefit, if the Electoral College is gone. I think the more likely scenario is that instead of this stable two-party system that we have right now, which, okay, admittedly has its frustrating moments, I I get it. Also, we would go to the alternative, and the alternative is even worse. (laughs) The Mm -hmm. alternative is that system I described in France where, yeah, somebody won with 19% of the vote. And, and I'm not exaggerating. If you go look up the French test, it'd literally be like 19% of the vote or something, and they're in the runoff. And, that, and by the way, the National Popular Vote Compact does not even create the possibility of a runoff. There is no runoff. They can't because, again, I'm going back to the they can't create a uniform thing to govern everybody. So there's no runoff. So literally somebody could win the presidency with 19 20% of the vote. And that's what happens in dictatorships sometimes, I think. 
to at least when they get started? Uh, well, when you have these multi-party systems, what you find is that, unfortunately, extremist groups hold too much power. And in our system right now, the, those kinds of extremist third-party groups tend to be squashed. You know, if you think, mm-hmm. they, because you can't get that kind of support in multiple regions of the country, across state lines, mm-hmm. across, you know, all these different things. So you think about a candidate like George Wallace, who did have a handful of southern states that voted for him and gave him electors. But he, you know, Nixon won in a landslide that year because George Wallace just didn't have that much power. And that's what happens to third parties in our country. Now, by contrast, what I think is interesting is that reasonable third parties tend to have a lot more influence, which I think is a great thing. And in that instance, you could think of somebody like Ross Perot, who, okay, he actually didn't win even one single elector. However, he took so much of the vote across the country in so many different places because it was a reasonable kind of mainstream thing that was driving it. It was concerns about the budget, right? The people who voted for Perot were concerned about the budget. And so he took such a big chunk out of the vote that to this day, political scientists would disagree whether he took more voters from Clinton or more voters from Bush. And the end result was that two years later, during the congressional races, both parties were trying to win those Perot voters back because both parties were worried about what would happen if they didn't. And so our system right now creates a really healthy dynamic where third-party candidates that are reasonable and mainstream and strong, they influence outcomes as opposed to extremist third parties who just have so much trouble getting a foothold in the system. Now, again, compare that to a multi-party system, the kind of system you would go to without the Electoral College, and you see people winning <laughs> with something like 19% of the vote. That's not good. And and so I'm... You now, know, people again, are not gonna... represented. Your vote and your voice is not counting if the person that is elected only uh, received the approval of 19% of the people. Your vote and your voice is not being counted. <laughs> It's it's not good, and in, and in France, I mean, you usually end up with an election where it's like maybe the incumbent or some a status quo against an extremist in the runoff, and, literally, and there, there's so much discontent with that that in a recent election, the French people have the ability to cast a blank ballot as like a protest vote. In a recent election, there was there was like a record number of them because the French people were so upset with their choices. So. You know, I, I think it's not enough to be discontent with where you are. You have to look and see what you'd be moving towards if you got, you know, if you changed. And if you changed the Electoral College, unfortunately, one of the things that you would take on is this kind of fractured multi-party state of affairs. Wow. So informative. Tara Ross, it seems like we've covered everything. Is there anything that I've missed, any question that I've missed asking you? No, I mean, if you want to... We could talk about um, just this, the general idea of swing states or the general those arguments that, that have been made lately about slavery and whether slavery is really, you know, sure, you know, let's driving force behind some of the stuff. You yeah, let's talk pick, about pick that. One. Okay. I mean, the, it, I'm sure your listeners have heard this in recent months and years, that they, there are people who are against the Electoral College who just kind of, you know, slay the whole thing is like, this is just a relic of slavery, this is a terrible thing. And what I would say to that is, look, if you are trying to get rid of a system and you're trying to demon, demonizing it is the way to go, right? If the more you can make it out to be evil and grounded in something that we hate, then, then of course people just want to get rid of it. Unfortunately, though, it's just not true. <laughs> this Electoral College was not started because of slavery. It was not started to defend that system. It's, they're just, 
they're, they're, I hate to say making it up, but they, but they are, are, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's, the reality is, I mean, I'll tell you the two things that they hang their hat on. One is the three-fifths compromise in the Constitution, which clearly I'm not going to be defending that compromise. But, but let's talk about what it was. It was not about the presidential election system, okay? It was about representation in the House of Representatives and whether, um, whether slaves would be counted as, as full people or not. Now, in that discussion, the Northerners did not want to count the slaves at all. I mean, it's not like that's an admirable position either. And the South, did, and of course, they wanted to count them as a full person. So in the end, they, they settled this compromise that was a three, it's called the Three-Fifths Compromise, but both sides gained something in that process. Again, not admirable. Like, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Right? They're both kind of just being bad guys. <laughs> and so the North, um, of course, what they gained was, or what they basically offered the South was, look, you're going to have slightly less representation in Congress, but then they tied the taxation to it and said that you'll also pay less taxes. So that's what the North and the South both got something out of that compromise. Again, not defending it. Yeah, also on on that, I I've tried to get my brain around this because people have said that America is saying that a black person was you know three fifths of as valuable as a white person, and that was not the case. This was a, a my understanding a whole political situation. So the South wanted to, for representation; they wanted the slaves to be counted because then they would have more representatives and representatives would mean more power in Washington. And the Northerners basically said, no, wait a minute. These, these people do not have their freedom right now. And because they do not have their freedom, then they can't be counted because they don't have their freedom. And so I, I don't, and so when they came to the compromise, I I think it, it was a way for the Northerners. I mean, they're getting, you know, acknowledging that these people exist, that they are are individuals, but coming to this compromise so that, um, I, I mean, I think it almost pushed us more towards getting rid of slavery. So I I feel that there is something somewhat admirable because tacitly the Southerners are saying these are people we want them to be counted as as a full vote. And tacitly, they're they're acknowledging that they are individuals with rights. And the Northerners uh, said, well, gosh, if you are not going to recognize them, then they don't count, and they come up with this compromise. So I felt that it was, given that time, it was a pretty incredible thing to do. Uh, do you have a comment on that? Yeah, you know, I mean, some of the commentary from the Northern delegates were, they, they said things like, well, if you can count your property with slaves, then why can't I count my property like a horse? You know, so, I mean, maybe to some degree, yes, but to some degree, I'm not sure everybody was that egalitarian. Okay. <laughs> but, okay. But, um, <laughs> but, but, but look, I, you know, I, 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 maybe I'll add to this, though. That, I mean, there were delegates like James Madison, okay, from Virginia, a southern state, who thought that, um, that, look, the good thing about the Constitution is it will lead to the end of slavery. He thought it was the logical outcome. And, and he um, he noted that the Articles of Confederation, which preceded the Constitution, gave no outlet for that, and, and there was no reason to believe that that would happen. In sharp contrast, contrast to the Constitution, which he firmly felt, and he, he thought it was delayed a few decades because, you know, the Constitution prohibited discussing certain things for a few decades. But, but he thought that in the end, because of the Constitution, slavery would go away. And, and so... 
I just think all of this needs to be taken into the mix when you're talking about the Constitution and what the founders were creating. Um, you know, and certainly when it comes to the presidential election process, what you see are conversations that over and over again, you see a divide between large states and small states. It was not a divide between small uh, slave states and not slave states. It was a divide between large and small. And within okay. the small, there were slave and not slave. Within the large, there were slave and not slave. But th- that's the division. And so, you know, the people who are against the Electoral College, you, you hear them try to create it as if it were about slavery. But if you read the text of the notes of the convention, that's just not what was happening. You know, they did have that one discussion about the Three-Fifths Compromise for the House. But when it came to the presidential election system, over and over again, you see large states that are comfortable with the national popular vote, small states that say, no way, you're going to run us over. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We do not agree with this. And, you know, again, it's just, as far as the slavery issue goes, they were mixed in. There was some on both sides. So it's good point. At the end of the day, the Electoral College, it's a compromise between large and small states, and it is meant to ensure that all kinds of voices are reflected in the the election system. Oh, I love that. Tara, what is your final thought that you would leave with our listeners as we are going into this election season? We are a strong no on Proposition 113 out here in Colorado, which is asking whether or not Colorado would join the National Popular Vote Compact. We're saying no. What's your final nugget of wisdom that you'd like to leave with our listeners? Well, I would definitely echo the no. You definitely need to vote no. Um, any other vote <laughs> is a vote for chaos and just turning our election system upside down on its head in ways that are not going to be understood until it's too late. And um, maybe what I'll leave you with is a quote from John F. Kennedy, who was a firm supporter of the Electoral College. People don't know that, but he gave a speech on the Senate floor as a senator. He gave a speech, and he compared the presidential election system to a solar system. He called it a solar system of governmental power. And he said if you change one aspect of it, it's going, it's going to have a domino effect, basically. And, and you don't even know what kind of consequences will come out at the end. So here's my analogy to add on to John F. Kennedy. If you, know, if you got the solar system and you change the gravitational pull of the sun, you change Earth's orbit. You might make Earth uninhabitable. You, you, don't, you can't make one change in a vacuum and expect everything else to stay the, stay the same. It won't. And the, the ramifications of taking the Electoral College out of our political system, you know, I, I, we, I think it will be far-reaching and it will be surprising to many people how much things will radically change. So I would urge you to, again, vote no, but also just to read more, find out more, learn more about the Electoral College and why we have it, because it, the, the end result of that education is you'll be surprised, really surprised at how much it has contributed to the stability of our political system. So that is a strong no on Proposition 113, whether or not Colorado should join the National Popular Vote Compact. And for more information, Tara Ross has a a great book, Why We Need the Electoral College. She has a children's book, We Elect a President, The Story of Our Electoral College. And check out the Prager University video, Do You Understand the Electoral College? Uh, And that will give you more information. Knowledge is power. Tara Ross, thank you so much for joining the Sounding Off with Kim, uh, Kim Munson podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. And my friends, God bless each and every one of you, and God bless America.